so many of us love coffee, like the living for it type of love. Some like it hot, some like it iced with a splash of creamer, and some like it with a cold foam topping. Many of us stop into coffee shops on our way to work more often than we'd like to admit. But now, thanks to International Delight Cold Foam Creamer, you can make cold foam coffee at home, or in my team's case, in the office, and it's a game changer. I was just chatting with a teammate of mine about our love for the occasional sweet treat coffee. Sometimes it's just the thing you need as a pick-me-up on a busy day. And we just stocked our office fridge with International Delight Cold Foam Creamer, and it never misses. The team's favorite flavor so far is the Caramel Macchiato. You just shake the canister and spray it into your coffee, and voila, you've got an incredible cold foam coffee, no frothing, fancy machines, or mess required. International Delight Cold Foam Creamer foams and creams your coffee from top to bottom. The best part? It works on both hot and iced coffee. It comes in three foaming, delicious flavors, French vanilla, sweet and creamy, and caramel macchiato. So you can switch things up depending on your mood. Look for your favorite flavor next time you're at your grocery store and be prepared to say goodbye to your barista. International Delight Cold Foam Creamer. It's foaming delicious. This is episode number 1202 with Dr. Paul Conti. Welcome to the School of Greatness. My name is Lewis Howes, former pro athlete turned lifestyle entrepreneur. And each week we bring you an inspiring person or message to help you discover how to unlock your inner greatness. Thanks for spending some time with me today. Now let the class begin. Welcome back, my friend. Today's guest is psychiatrist Dr. Paul Conti, and he is a graduate of Stanford University School of Medicine. He completed his psychiatry training at Stanford and at Harvard, where he was appointed chief resident. He then served on the medical faculty at Harvard before founding his own clinic. He's written a new book called Trauma, The Invisible Epidemic, How Trauma Works, and how we can heal from it. I was so inspired by this work because I feel like so many of us have dealt with different types of traumas in our life, from our childhood to adolescence to our our adult lives. And sometimes we're not even aware of the types of trauma we're facing. So in this episode, we discuss how trauma is the root of so many problems, yet it's not easy for us to discuss. How to better understand and heal from trauma. The first step to take with yourself before seeing a therapist. Why your inner dialogue heavily affects your mental health and so much more. Again, I was moved by this. I was inspired by this. I think it's extremely important for us to take on this type of information to help us improve the quality of our thoughts, our emotions, and our life. So if you're inspired and moved as well and find this helpful for yourself, then please share this with a few friends that you think would love this message as well. Post it over on social media and make sure to tag me, Lewis Howes, and make sure to check out Dr. Paul Conti as well. And I want to give a shout out to our fan of the week from Amanda, who left us a review over on Apple Podcast. And Amanda said, if you could bottle motivation and fuel for action, this would be it. It's like drinking motivation every time I listen. I had been feeling invisible and like I didn't know myself and somehow I feel like I'm back. I have the power to remove the cloak of invisibility and make my dreams come alive. Thanks for a great podcast with so many wonderful guests and words of wisdom. So big shout out to Amanda for being a fan of the week and leaving us a review over on Apple Podcast. And again, if you want a chance to be shouted out on the podcast, just go to Apple Podcast right now. Click subscribe to stay notified every week of our incredible content and leave us a review with a part of this episode that you enjoy the most. But before the episode starts, I want to give a quick trigger warning 
that we do discuss different forms of sexual abuse and healing from those experiences. Okay, in just a moment, the one and only Dr. Paul Conti. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. And I know there's a stigma around going to therapy, and I'll admit it, I used to be embarrassed about it, but I've realized how important and normal it is going to therapy. And going to therapy doesn't mean something's wrong with you. It just means you're investing in yourself to keep your mind and your emotions healthy. And we get our cars tuned up to prevent bigger issues down the road. We get annual checkups and we go to the gym to maintain physical wellness and prevent injury and disease. We do chores regularly, or at least most of the time, to avoid a giant mess in our houses. So why? Why do we not do the same upkeep for our mental health? Well, BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. And it's much more affordable than in-person therapy and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. Why invest in everything else and not in your own mind? The School of Greatness listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com greatness. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash greatness. It's no secret that my style puts comfort very high on the priority list for me. And I'm all about the simple t-shirts, the joggers or the jeans, and of course, comfy shoes that I can be active in. And that's why I've been loving my Allbirds wool runners. And they have redefined what it means to be comfortable all day long. And once you lace up your own pair, you'll see what I mean. The Allbirds wool runners will make the perfect gift this season for anyone who loves to be comfortable. And I think that's everyone. They're made from soft, sustainable merino wool. So not only do they feel like a cozy bed for your feet, they also look good too. The best part is Allbirds is on a mission to reverse climate change. They are a B Corp, making the environment a stakeholder in their business, which is pretty cool. And we can create a more sustainable future together, but only if we tread lighter on the planet. So give comfort and feel joy this holiday season. Find your own pair or one to gift at allbirds.com today. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com. Welcome back, everyone, to the School of Greatness. Very excited about our guest. Paul Conti is in the house. Good to see you, sir. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Of course. I'm so glad you're here. You've got uh, decades of experience on how trauma works and how we can heal from it. You have this new book called Trauma, the Invisible Epidemic that I think is so exciting for me because I truly believe that it's hard to have a meaningful, fulfilling, peaceful life if you haven't dealt with your own traumas. Yes. You can achieve, you can accomplish, you can yes. explore the world, you can ha you know build a big business, you can meet lots of great yes. people, but there's like this something inside that uh, is kind of like creates this anxiety or stress or not enoughness. I don't know what it is. And I had this for many years of my life. I've talked about this publicly many yeah. times, going through sexual abuse as a kid. In your book, you say, you don't want to compare people's trauma, but you say sexual abuse for a kid is probably one of the, the most, the yes. biggest traumas that there is. Yes. I'm glad you say that because I think the stat is one in four women have been sexually abused. I don't know if they're all children, but the, mm -hmm. you know, abuse there mm -hmm. for women and one in six in men. Yes. And again, it may not be as a kid, but there's abuse for men that way. Right. And I feel like it's hard for people to understand trauma. It's yes. hard for them to understand it. It's hard for them to deal with the shame behind it. Yes. And then how to heal the trauma. 
So I want to unpack some of this. Yeah. But I wanted to set the stage for uh, for this conversation because you've been doing this work for twenty ish years. Yes. And why did you decide to talk about trauma in this way? And what have you seen from your experience on how it impacts people in a negative way if it's uh, if it's not dealt with properly? Yeah. Yeah. I, mean, I didn't set out to be a trauma person or mm-hmm. you know, to focus on trauma, but as I gained more and more experience, I thought, wow, like this is an undercurrent of almost everything I'm doing. Everything. Right. Give me an example. So it's depression, anxiety, panic attacks, sleep problems, even addiction problems, even psychosis, right? Like, like trauma pushing people to a point where mm. there's a predisposition to not be able to cope with reality, but it's the trauma that sends the person over the edge, really? right? Or triggering bipolar episodes. So if you think about more the more severe mental health problems, right? All the way through to, to problems that have a, a scale of severity, right? Mm-hmm. Depression, anxiety. Um, and then certainly trauma pushing and promoting abusive substances, uh, drugs and alcohol, and addiction, which then of course furthers trauma, right? So I started seeing, hey, it kind of doesn't matter really what I'm engaging with someone about, right? More often than not, there's an undercurrent of trauma that unless that's thought about and addressed, we're kind of like polishing the hood, mm-hmm. right? When we need to get under the hood and, and really get into the engine, right? And there's a mental health system that loves polishing the hood, right? Like, like a lot of things we do in life in this country now, we, we kind of want to spruce things up and make them look a certain way yes. and not look at what's really going on underneath the surface. And then I started seeing that the, the, the sort of reflexive creation of shame when a person suffers trauma the, the sort of immediacy of that sense of shame and the response to it to keep everything inside, right? To is not communicate why, about it. Right. Why do we right. not want to communicate about the, the shame that we have? Why is that so hard for us? Well, it's the shame itself. Like shame is synonymous with, with, with um, the message of like, you must keep this secret, uh. right? And if shame is evoked, so if it's in a reflexive way created by trauma, in the vast majority of circumstances, I believe that to be true because I've seen that play out in front of me over 20 years, that the, the reflexive shame is in and of itself a, a message of secrecy, right? And that's why, as you, you were saying at the beginning, right, people are carrying burdens around yeah. with them. And you can look from the outside and say, like, this person has achieved this and this person has achieved that. And you know, what we see from the outside is so often not at all reflective of what's going on in the inside. And you know, part of the, the wonderful privilege of being a psychiatrist and, and consulting to people through the psychiatric lens is, is you get to learn like what's mm-hmm. on the inside. And then mm-hmm. you see a commonality that I've seen across this, the whole socioeconomic spectrum, uh, across like, any different factor you can identify, right? Th- this is present in people ac- across that spectrum. Yeah. What would you say is the percentage, rough estimate, of people in America that have faced, that have experienced some type of trauma in their life? You have to stratify by severity, right? And if you you could say, okay, we can identify, like trauma is negatively impactful in that person's life, and we can take stock of it and describe it. Mm. I think we're well over half the population. Wow. We just have to be. The clinical work bears it out. The statistics bear it out, right? Mental health challenges, yeah. 
I figure one in four women suffering from sexual assault, right? One in six men. I mean, so that's one aspect of trauma, and we're yeah. already up to you know, 20%, 25% of people, right? right? So then there's the, the fact that trauma just pervades the environment we all live in, right? I mean, we, we experience it vicariously. We look at the news, which is now really more... You know, it's more marketing, right? Of like a, trauma click marketing. On this. Yeah. Right. Trauma marketing. It's, right. It's repetitive, <laughs> incessant trauma marketing. Look at what could happen to you. Look at what could happen to your kids. Look at what could happen to anyone around you, right? Over and over and over again. And you, know, you combine that with the, the political strife in the country, the, the worries about the terrorism. And, and, you know, we're living kind of like this. We're yeah. living in it with a sense of very much escalated tension in us. So I, I think it pervades the whole world around us. And so I think in that way, we're all subject to it. I mean, I don't know anyone who doesn't know someone closely or intimately that has identifiable significant trauma. So in that way, it does affect all, all of us. Yeah. What, is, what are the common, you know, if you could uh, talk about the, the theme of all the people that come to you, what would you say are like the, the five to seven main reasons they come to you? Maybe it's not what's under the hood, but the main things that come to you, is it, stress, anxiety, is it, you know, depression? What are the main kind of themes that you're seeing consistently? Yeah, you know, what people mostly present with is just a sense of angst, mm -hmm. a sense of frustration. You know, like sometimes a person will present and say, well, I have depression, right? And they may know that because maybe they do have very clearly delineated cyclical depressive episodes, right? Or they've been diagnosed with depression, right? Mm -hmm. but, but when people present kind of de novo of like, well, I don't, say if I sat up, care what your diagnoses are, right? Let's just talk about like, what's going on in you? Like, why, why did you come in, right? Then what people talk is that that sense of angst inside of them, right? The sense that something isn't right, right? Yes. And if they've checked a lot of boxes, right? Then, then we have an expectation, right? That, you know, if I'm doing the right things, right? And I have a, I have a good stable career, right? And I have a, a good roof over my head and, you know, everyone's healthy around me. Like, I should feel good, right? right? And, you know, that was part of my own challenges where like I saw that develop even in myself where I start to develop an anger and a resentment that I don't feel good even though I've worked hard enough to check all of these boxes. So yeah. I think even in those situations, let alone how many people are struggling with financial insecurity, occupational insecurity, housing insecurity. You know, so you add that on top of it and you know we just keep raising and raising and raising the level of tension, which then of course propagates and perpetuates yeah. trauma. I mean, the thought of it as an epidemic you know, predates the, the, the pandemic. Like you know, that was started writing this and thinking about it that way a long time ago with the idea that we don't know this is here and it's spreading from one of us to another, to another and back. And, we're not aware of it. It's invisible. Yeah. Yeah. But it's yeah. it's spreading quickly and it constantly stays with us. Like you were, you were writing in the book about how just because an event happened in the past 5, 10, 20, 30 years ago doesn't mean it's not still carrying with you today right. until you address it, until you start right. to really process right. the integrating of, of healing, right? Right. Right. And I saw that over and over again. Maybe, gosh, it was probably... 17, 18 years ago, I covered about a dozen nursing homes along the, the seaboard of Massachusetts. And, and some, a lot of people in the nursing homes you could do therapy with, mm -hmm. right? And, and I would see over and over again, what is, what's plaguing this person, right? And it could be trauma from 10, 20, 30, 40, really? 50 years ago that, that was so fresh and alive as if it had happened yesterday or last week, yet it could be a half a century 
ago, and and that struck me so strongly that that you know we, we tuck these things away inside of us, and then they're sort of sealed in us. And if we don't go back and look at them, we carry with us the burdens, which are often burdens of shame. Mm. Right, they're burdens of self-blame. They're burdens of inadequacy. And unless we go back and look at that, we don't mm. challenge those lessons. Right, like trauma teaches us these terrible lessons, and then we just hide it away, and then it becomes immutable. Right, there's no way of then going and accessing, saying, "Well, what's actually true about that?" Right, right. What do you actually believe about that? And how many people have told me about something so so very clearly traumatic done to them? Right, so they're walking down the street and they're attacked. Right. And they talk about it through the lens of shame, right? That it was their fault. It shows mm. that they're not a worthwhile person. They can't really make the way, their way in the world. They can't keep themselves safe. No one will ever like them, right? No one will ever care for them. Mm. Right? And, and like these lessons are there for years and years about something, once you start talking about it and unpacking it, they, they logically know there's no shame to feel, right. right? But the logic doesn't matter if the emotion <sighs> is telling us something different. Right. Now, if we go through a traumatic experience and we mm -hmm. hold on to this shame, can it change our biology, our genes? Does it, you know, what's it do to the chemistry in our brain, uh, to our heart? What does it do to us physically? What is so amazing is we have proof of things that even 20 years ago, if one had said, you know, oh, trauma can change the, the genes that you pass on. Right? Not necessarily maybe the actual gene itself, but whether it's active or not, which makes all the difference, right? If you have it mm. and it's not active, you may as well not have it, right? Mm -hmm. If you don't have it, that's, you know, th that, that's the same as like you got, the, you got a good gene, right? But now it's not turned on, right? And the thought that like how we genetically present, right? What's going on inside of us can be impacted by trauma that happened years before conception would have sounded crazy, mm. right? So, so, Someone who is deeply traumatized, you, you look at rape as a tool of warfare, right? And the thought having been that, that there's, okay, it's a crime committed on one day by one person against another, yes. right? That, that narrow conception doesn't even begin to touch what actually happens. Like that, mm -hmm. that person is, without the right intervention, likely changed for the rest of their life. Wow. And if they have a, a child five years later, Right, the, the genes that are active in that child are changed as a result of the trauma. Really? And, and these, like, it sounds shocking. And you know, I, I interviewed Darren Richarder, who's a, a friend of mine and a, an academic psychiatrist who's done a lot of the work around this. And, and you know, he speaks to it so eloquently that, that, yes, what's going on here is not, oh, that crime happened on that day, but that trauma is transgenerational. Wow. And it, it impacts us from head to toe. It impacts our cardiovascular health, so therefore our risk of heart attack, our risk of stroke, our risk of autoimmune diseases. So, so it's not theoretical and esoteric, right? It impacts us from head to toe. Mm. And we know that now. Like we, we have the physical proof of it, which is in ways like very gratifying, right? As opposed to like making assertions like this even a decade ago or, or closer to 20 years ago mm -hmm. when you couldn't really get any traction is what's well, esoteric it's something have the person looks the same so like they're right. still okay right and suck, like just it's suck not it up true. and it was yeah it was 20 years right. ago so let it go or whatever right right what was a a trauma that was extremely hard for you to heal or that took you the longest to kind of overcome sure and does it still impact you today or is there hope for us that hey if you go through something traumatic 
there are ways to heal so it doesn't have to impact you in a negative way for the rest of your life. Yeah, I think there's definitely hope for that. And and since you'd asked about me, you know, my my brother's suicide mm -hmm. when I was in then my early twenties was so dramatically impactful on me, on my family, and. You know, at the time, I was very fortunate. Like, I knew nothing about mental health. I was in an entirely different career field. And, you know, I was fortunate to have good people around me. Like, it was really good, supportive people. And that helped get me through it. And, and the knowledge of, hey, maybe I should get some help, mm -hmm. right? Like, you know, no one really got therapy. You know, it was, it was a, an interesting, strange thing to do, right? Because, well, there's this helping resource there. And it was immensely helpful. Yeah. To just, you know, someone just asking me, like, well, how do you feel about that? And this sense of, like, I feel doomed. I feel ashamed. I feel despondent. And, and you know, that, that doesn't lead a person to good places, right? That leads yeah. a person to depression, to self-destruction, to drugs and alcohol. Yeah. And, right. And even just having some basic help like that helped me, like, stay on track, mm -hmm. right? And then as time has gone on and I've accumulated more like really significant traumas since then. You know, the first half of my life, I didn't have major trauma. Really? And then sort of the second half, I've had a bunch of major trauma. Really? And, and being able to sort of see it through that lens of like, oh, I just naturally felt differently, right? I had a different view of the world as a place where I could make myself felt and seen and, and I could impact and like good things would come to me. Like I had a whole set of beliefs mm. that then really changed really you know and it changed in a way that made me feel much more defensive of the world and afraid of the world and it was it was really getting very very good psychotherapy mm. in that second part of my life so I, I you know went to medical school and started training as a psychiatrist and started really getting good therapy that i, I realized yes you, this doesn't have to control your life but it is a struggle right like it's 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 on my mind it's an active part of my self-care and my psychotherapy, and sometimes use of medicines. Mm. So I, I have to actively really take care of myself to maintain a perspective where I'm aware that it's there, wow. but it's not, in a sense, pulling the wool over my eyes and telling me things that can really lead us down a path of, sometimes a path of destruction. You can claim victory in sports, on the job site, even on your taxes by switching to H&R Block. Block offers many ways to file to fit your schedule. A 100% accurate return on your max refund or your money back. Plus, you'll always know the price of your tax prep before you begin. Switch today and feel like a tax champion. This tax season, it's better with Block. Make an appointment at hrblock.com. Disclaimer, all tax situations are different. Not everyone gets a refund. Limitations apply. Description of benefits and details at hrblock.com slash guarantees. My career not only requires me to travel, but also gives me the freedom to. Traveling has brought me so many positive experiences and memories. Like that time I spent the holidays at an Airbnb in Big Bear with some of my extended family, and it was the perfect way to come together and connect with my family that I don't see that often. And if you have a similar setup that allows you to travel often, have you ever thought about your empty home while you're gone? More specifically, how you can make some extra money by keeping your home occupied while you're out of town. I'm a big advocate for setting up a side hustle to give you an extra stream of income and Airbnb hosting is an easy place to start. Many people host on Airbnb, including some friends of mine, but there are some people out there who've never even realized their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you've got yourself an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. 
Isn't it obnoxious when companies have those sneaky gotchas hiding deep in the fine print or bills that seem to go up for no dang reason? Like when budget airlines promise a cheap fare, but then charge you for every little thing until you realize you're paying even more than you would have elsewhere? At Metro by T-Mobile, there's nada yada yada. That means no contracts, no price hikes, no surprises. They don't even want me to speed through the legal, so here it is. When they say no price hikes when you join, they mean your price will never increase for talk, text, and smartphone data plans. Their only exclusions are for limited-time promos, per-use charges, and third-party services. I guess that really is nada yada yada. At Metro by T-Mobile. Nada yada yada. But other times, just a path of you know, sadness and sort of despondency and not living up to what we want to be, you know, yeah. not just career-wise, but interpersonally, like the right. kind of parent I want to be and the kind of husband and friend. And, and, and I think with a real awareness that like, hey, I'm laboring against this, mm-hmm. right? Then it doesn't have to control me. And I found that in so, so many of the people that I, that I take care of. Yeah. I found that to be true. Wow. So the first half of your life, pretty happy, normal, healthy lifestyle, no major traumas. Second half, a, a bunch of major traumas, it sounds like, right. starting with a suicide to your, your brother. Where do you think you would be without having healing therapeutic modalities to process over the second half of your life? Where do you think your life would be, you know, if you could think about it? I think by not in a good place. Really? And I don't know exactly what that means like like one worry would be the specter of depression which runs in me and runs in the family and 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 you know, I I could see getting lost in that in a way that then narrows one's horizons and you know that promotes frustration and anger you know and and at times even bitterness in people and and yeah. it can lead us away from you know, just like being a a good person in the world, right? Yeah. Like we become more isolated from care and concern to or from other people. And, and then I think it's a very small step from that to abusive substances. I mean, they're just so, so there in front of us right. to say, yeah, like, well, you, know, you feel awful, right? And you feel awful and angry and frustrated and an injustice about feeling awful, right? Don't you want to soothe this now? Don't you deserve that now? Like, that's a very, it's a self-seduction, yes. but it's a self-seduction that leads so many of us to a path of like short-term healing at the expense of you know the, the long-term of the rest yeah. of our lives. Is, is almost all addiction stemming from some type of shame based on a trauma, would you say? Or can addiction happen from other ways? Yeah, I think addiction can happen in other ways, especially their genetic components to how we respond to certain substances. And there can be substances that are, well, some of them for everyone, like opiates, you know, are, are so powerful mm. that it probably doesn't matter what our genetic predispositions are. Like that can get the best of any of us, really? right? By, by creating such euphoria followed by uh, such withdrawal from that euphoria, mm. right? That, it, that there are substances that can just take a hold of us, you know, no matter what our state of health is, right? right. But there are also then genetic predispositions of one person to another of what we may be exceptionally vulnerable to. Right. So, so substances, I think, can have a life of, essentially have a life of their own in creating problems in us. But that being said, the vast majority of dysfunction I see 
in people, whether it's substances or it's acting out against the self. You know, it may be self-harm, right, mm. physically, or it may be just keeping a, a sort of sadistic accounting in our minds, right? Like what? Of, of well, I'm not doing well enough in life, so, so like, you know, you don't get to go do that, right? Mm. You don't get to do that enjoyable thing or, you don't deserve you know, it. Yeah. right, you don't deserve to like have a good meal tonight, right? You don't get deserve to get enough rest, right? You don't deserve to like go out with that person who might really be a really good partner, right? right. Like this, this sense of, of like there being an accounting inside of us that oppresses us. Mm. We've known for many, many years, you know, in my field, people thought about people a lot more like a hundred years ago, right? Because we didn't have the advancements we have, which in many ways are wonderful, right? Yeah. But we think less about people. And then this idea- What do you mean that, we think less about like how other people are doing? Is that what you mean or what do you mean? No, we, we think less, like in my field, we think less about like, okay, if you're my patient, or what's going on in you? Like how do you feel about life, mm. right? And what are the dynamics of that? We, we've, we've stepped away from that in very much a polish the hood kind of way. Well, mm. whatever's going on with you, like your insurance authorizes 10 sessions of CBT, ah, gotcha. and you'll get that and you'll take a medicine, then you're gonna be better or you will have failed the intervention, right? Like that's not helpful gotcha. in most cases. And when, when people thought more about other people, they thought about ideas like, for example, there's no internal victim without an internal persecutor, right? Which I don't mean like feeling victimized, like somebody steals your wallet, you're like, look, I'm a victim, I fill, fill out a report, right? But the idea that, no, no, I'm a victim, I stand out as a mark to people, right? That if, if people are looking for someone to hurt in a relationship, they're gonna look to me. Wow. People are looking to someone to abuse and bully around, whether it's on the playground or it's in the office, right? It's gonna be me, right? People, when people think like that, they also internalize the persecutor, right? There doesn't need, I've, I've worked with people who've been, who are still in their minds being actively persecuted by someone who's been dead for 20 years. Right. right, because that person doesn't need to be alive anymore because they're doing it to themselves. And we can get like that. In fact, I think it, the internal dialogue in us that can say, oh, what an awful person, or you know, you're never gonna get anywhere, and how stupid, right? Like, how many of us have that going on inside of us? And that arises from trauma, and it blinds us to yeah. like, look, who am I? Who do I wanna be in the world? What do I have to offer? Like, how are you gonna make the best of that? If there's a running dialogue in your mind, saying, you're so stupid, you messed that up again. Or, and like that's present in so, so many of us. Is there a way around trauma? Like I used to, I grew up thinking to myself a lot, like you're stupid, you're never gonna mount anything. Like saying these things internally right. all the time as a child in like elementary school, right. not knowing why I was doing it, but I just kept doing it. Right. You know, I, I didn't have the tools to heal. And there wasn't, ex when I was growing up in the 80s, early 90s there wasn't models of you know grown men that i could look to on tv or athletes or whatever right. who were openly talking about their emotions talking right. about traumas talking about here here's what you should do to heal if you've right. been hurt or something right and so i felt like i had to stuff it in until right. i turned 30 and then i started to realize wow i've accomplished all these external things but feel like something's still missing right you'll feel like Right. Why am I not fulfilled? Why am I not peaceful? Right. And then I went on a journey for many years of, of healing and, and letting yes. go of the shame. And, and as yes. my therapist says now, uh, healing is not an event. It's not a one-time moment where you're like, I'm healed because I talked about it. It's a, right. it's a journey. Yes. It's a process of integration. Yes. yes. Um, is there a way to go around trauma to just shine the hood and be okay? Or do you feel like the only way is to go to the core root of it 
and deal with the process of healing it. Yeah, I think the only way is to go to the root of it and and mm -hmm. try and heal that core process. I mean, sometimes, you know, there are always outlying situations, yeah. right, where where you know a person can just polish the hood a little bit, go on with with their life and, and like have, sort of have things be okay. But that's, that's functional, but not like, yeah. <laughs> right, that's the rarity though. And, and I've seen over and over and over again that it festers inside of us. And mm. some people are blessed with a sort of resilience gene. Like, you know, people have thought about this since this was the Second World War. Like, well, why did some people like survive concentration camps? Right? Yes. Why were some people able to, to like still see hope, right? Still persevere, still be resilient, right? And there are some genetics around that that we just don't understand well. And if a person is blessed with that, then when like you feel despairing, then, then what you may do is, is something that, that seems productive or, or positive in the outside world, right? That you, that you do in order to get some like legitimate feeling of, of something good, yes. right? And it may be that you have that gene, where you have the genetics for that, right? And I think I have the genetics for that, right? And and those are like, but those are blessings, right? Like we don't want to count on like I have a gene for resilience, so you know I didn't drink my life away after my brother's suicide, right? right like right. we don't we don't want to rely on that mm -hmm. because if a person has enough resilience, you can get yourself maybe to where you found yourself at thirty, where like oh wait, I've achieved a lot, and then something inside says, wait, is all that really true about me, mm -hmm. right? Because if I really am this like awful person, like how did I, wait, how did I do this? And then, then you can have a greater breadth of perspective. Mm -hmm. And then what you probably start, started say doing for yourself then was reconstructing a narrative. Yes. Right? And that's why the construction the of a life narrative. Yeah. Right, we're like, wait, is that story true, mm -hmm. right? Because it's gotten a pass. Right, like it's gotten a pass, and I see people who, for years and years and years, the story of, you know, why they're not worth anything, right, has just come forward without any challenge, right. But when, yes. when you, if you start helping them talk about it and think about it, like, you know, a lot of times I'll say, well, look, from what you're telling me, there's, I mean, there's there's some shame to be had in this story, but it sounds like it's not yours. Mm. Right, and that, that's the case in, in the case of acute trauma, right? We can look at oh, look. So wait, so somebody hurt you, right? And and then you can start thinking, well, but you feel ashamed, right? Like how does that work inside? Mm -hmm. Like wh why does it work that way, right? Like why do we have this reflexive shame? And like where do you actually want that to go, right? Or do you feel anger or frustration about it, right? And people no, often when people don't. Well, how do you not feel that, right? Mm. It's just that it's coming back in towards them. And then you say, well, what, what is it like? Like, what do you say to yourself when you wake up in the morning, when you're driving in the car? Like, I remember working with someone who was take, driving this really long drive to work. And I learned as part of working with her that she loved music, loved listening to music. And then, and then like, it just came up that she never turned the music on in the car. Why not? I'm like, well, it was going on a long drive, right? Because she didn't want to block the narrative in her head. The negative narrative. Right, the negative narrative that was like, you're worth nothing. You're worth, because there was, that, the feelings that was, in her mind, justified, right? That was the justifiable self-punishment for what? For being hurt by other people, right? And when we unpack that, we're and, like, wow. And how long do we hold on to that punishment for? Like potentially, potentially forever, unless we go in and look at it. So you know, the first prescription I wrote was, Turn music on in car, right? <laughs> yeah. And and then as she became more aware, she's like, right, there's there's like a whole story in my head. And that story plays over and over and over again. And it plays over in that summarized manner. You're not worth anything. No one will ever love you, right? Mm. And you know, this I mean, 
the reason this person comes to mind, there's a lot of people like this whose lives have really, really changed. Once you're like, wait, that's not actually not my story, right? And logic tells me something different, but logic hasn't had one thing to say about it. It's all been through emotion. So let's talk about that emotion, reconstruct the narrative, and then like, it's remarkable how much better things can get because it's not a hocus pocus, right? It's, yeah. it's a way from like the black magic hocus pocus towards mm-hmm. what's actually true. There's a simplicity to it. Yes. And that's why the, the book is, is designed to be very practical, right? It's not designed to be like an academic treatise. It's designed to say like, we can make this better now mm-hmm. and, and we can start making it better right now by just thinking, what's going on in my head? What am I saying to myself? What's going on in the people around me? You know, someone who may be a little different I don't know why, or a little different after something difficult happened. Can I talk with them, right? Like there's so much that we can do, but we become more and more isolated in society. You know, we're busy, we're running around, we're at odds with each other in lots and lots of ways that are politically or socially driven. And then we're so isolated that we never challenge these narratives. And that Mm -hmm. was like the amazing thing that I saw with such sadness in in the, you know, doing nursing homework so many years ago, it was like so many people are carrying with them the trauma of so many years ago and it's just as alive as it was in that, you know, when it happened. And it's been, in a sense, the pivotal force of how their life has gone forward. I mean, yeah. not everyone, but there was a lot of that. You were mentioning how, you know, there's a narrative that we say, you know, I'm not lovable, I'll never be good enough, or I don't deserve this. Right. What would you say are the three biggest lies we tell ourselves? maybe that you hear from people when they come into your office, what would those three big lies be? Yeah, look, I think you just, you said, I'm, I'm not lovable, yeah. right? I'm not good enough, and what was that? I don't deserve. I don't deserve, right. Yeah. Right, so the, the not, think about what not lovable means, right? Is it means like there's something, I'm intrinsically flawed, right? I mean, to say one is not lovable, it's such a blanket statement of persecution, right? If you think about what it would be like saying that outwardly to someone, Right? Like you're just making a blanket statement. You are not lovable, right? I mean, it's, it's awful, right? And it's why the persecutor inside of us can say things to us that like people outside of us you know, generally don't, right? right. Or we wouldn't tolerate from other people. Like right. how dare one say that, right? But it's going on inside of our minds. And that's, you know, the practical, the practical shift of that is like the I'm not good enough, right? Because mm-hmm. if I'm not lovable as an intrinsic characteristic, then that translates, well, I'm not good enough to do what I set out to do, right? I'm not good enough to achieve, whatever that may be. And, 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 and then, yes, like I, and then of course one isn't deserving, right? I mean, if all that is true, then you're not deserving of anything. Like think about how, talk about blanket statements, right? And, and I think the proof of like, why do I think for sure that this is true? Like, you know, psychiatry isn't math, right? But maybe it's because I was a math minor yeah. way back when. I love, mathematical proof of things, right? Is I've, I've seen more people than I could possibly count who I know them are personally, professionally, they're people in my life. And I see them before trauma and after, mm. right? And, and, and sometimes I marvel at how not only do they think about themselves entirely different, but they really? don't know that they thought any differently before. They think they've always been thinking this way. Yeah, I've never been good enough, Wow. right? This has always been true. I mean, no one's ever loved you. I'm like, what do you mean? Like before the trauma, you know, you had like a great job and friends and yeah. a wonderful girlfriend. Like, it, like things were great before, but they don't, you know, because the, the consequences of trauma 
change our memories, right? Like our memories only have mm. meaning through the emotion that's attached to them. Interesting. Right? So if you change memories and now there's a negative spin on that, you can say, well, what about, you know, I could remember a person who would tell me about some award, I think it was when it was high school or early in college, like something to feel really proud of. Mm-hmm. And we'd talk about that and like, like anchor to that of like, hey, that says like, I can do things, right? Who then on the other side of the trauma remembered that in a very negative way of, really? you know, something was given to me I didn't deserve and, you know, and- I got that's, lucky or whatever, yeah. yeah and, and you know, it showed like, it didn't mean anything. Like all it did was make pressure on me I could never live up to. And, and you know, now, so, I, so there's an explanation for like avoiding the better job, right? Or, or from going from a lousy mm. relationship partner, maybe even an abusive one to someone who could be better. Like, why do you, why would you do that if you have an expectation of failure. And if the expectation of failure is based on the false lessons of trauma, well, we have, a, we have very powerful examples of what this does to us. We forget wow. our own histories. Wow. You said memories have meaning through the emotions we've attached to them, is that right? Yes. It's so true. And if we, if we have a memory, it sounds like what I'm hearing you say, if you have a memory of the past from, that could be a good event for many years and then you go through a trauma right. and somehow you reconnect it to that event or whatever, you can completely shift your emotions toward that event to being a negative experience. Right. That's yes. crazy. It, it, but it really, it really is. And like this is, we think like shocking. Some people ask me like, what's like shocking things you've learned like being a psychiatrist? And that's... That may be the top of the list. I mean, it's certainly near the top of the list. Like our, our own histories are malleable inside of us. And, mm. you know, people have brought up a, a couple times, like I write examples in there. And, like, and you know, there's a railway station in London, right? St. Pancras, I'm, I'm sure not pronouncing it in like the correct English way, but, but it sounds like pancreas, right? And then, like, I love England. I, I, I spent some time in college in England, and I just, I love being in England. I love being in London. And I was walking to meet a friend at the St. Pancras Rail Station, right? And you think that that's like, it should be a joyful thing. And as I'm walking there, I felt awful. You know, I felt terrible. And I felt like, what am I doing here? And like, I deserve to be here. I'm going to see my friend. Like, why is my friend? Like, I felt so terrible really? about myself. And then I realized 100% like what that was is, you know, my mother died of pancreatic cancer. Oh, and wow. Pancras sounds a lot like pancreas and, and like it was that realization of like that's absolutely what I'm thinking about and I'm thinking what a person you didn't go home enough when your mom was sick and you know oh, I, man, I, yeah. I'm thinking all these things in my mind and I, I realized like so my memory of like what that place was evoking in me had changed right and it changed my feeling and I, and I needed so you so said can we get better we can but we have to have it in my head like I, I need to stop and think like look these, these are different things Mm. Right, and you're triggered to feel a certain way about this. You don't actually feel that way, right? You're happy to be here, right. and you think you did a decent job as a good son when your mother was sick. You actually believe that, and you can't wait to see this person. He can't wait to see you either, right? That's why he took a train down from Northern England, right? Mm-hmm. And I could feel differently about it, but I mean, it's a lot of like work on that, right? To not just be carried away to some very negative feeling state yes. where the, the my self talk went strongly along with that negative feeling state. So how do we, let's say we don't have uh, a therapist to our, you know, as a resource for us. Yeah. Or we don't have the funds or for whatever reason we're not comfortable doing that yet, which I'm a big fan of, I love therapy. 
Um, What can someone do if they realize, you know what, I'm feeling some of these lies or these symptoms of angst, frustration, depression. Maybe I'm using a substance already. Maybe I'm addicted to something. Maybe I'm in denial that I'm addicted to something, whatever it may be, or just feeling depressed or depressed feelings. Yes. What are some practical things that people can do on their own before they go and start processing with a yeah. trained uh, professional? Yeah, it's such a good question, right? Because like, not everyone has access to that. And, and certainly it's not something we can get immediately mm-hmm. even if we have access to it, right. right? And I would give two very strong answers to that of to stop and think, hey, what's going on inside of me? When you get a new car or a new home, your first reaction might be to say things like, oh yeah, or I can't believe it, or booyah. But what you really want to say is the one thing that can get you the help you need. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm is there with the coverage you need for your car, your home, and even boats, motorcycles, RVs, and other things that matter to you. With a State Farm agent, you know someone is there to help you choose the coverage you need. With so many coverage options, it feels good knowing you can find what fits for you. And when you need ways to get help, State Farm gives you options there too, in person or on the phone with your local agent or on statefarm.com where their award-winning app State Farm lets you do things your way. So when you need help protecting the things that matter most, remember to say, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. The Enhanced American Express Business Gold Card is designed to take your business further. It's packed with benefits like four times membership rewards points that adapt to your top two eligible spending categories every month on up to $150,000 in purchases per year and up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. The Amex Business Gold Card, now smarter and more flexible. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Right? Like we take what's going on inside of us as a given. You know, that woman who drove 50 minutes to work and back every day and didn't turn the radio on so she could say awful things to herself, never thought once about it until that offhand comment about mm. why, why there's no music in the car, right? Wait a second, right? Now, we st- now for the first time she thinks about it, right? So think about what is actually going on inside of me, which is really closely tied to the second point, which is what's my narrative about mm. myself and my life? And and like, what do I actually think? It's going back and looking at the things that we now take as a given. Right? And if you think trauma so predisposes to that, I mean, I know trauma is not a, a thing, but I would say trauma like loves that, right? Because then we don't go back and look at it. We, we just take, take all that off of us. Well, that's a given. That's that. Mm-hmm. And now like, here I am. And it's like, that's not a given. It's not, that's that, right? We can go look at what's going on inside of me. What's the narrative I'm constructing? And that can be very, very helpful to people who have no access to outside resources. And if you can find like one trusted person, right? You can just you can talk to yeah. about it. Once you start doing that, if you can just sit with somebody, friend, family, clergy, it doesn't matter, somebody that's trusted because you know we have error checking mechanisms inside of us that we don't use when we're thinking, but we use when we're talking, mm. right? And that's why putting it, it's yeah. amazing how many times was, oh, I said that. And now I feel totally different, even though I've thought about it 10,000 times. I hear that all the time. So start putting words to it, writing, writing about it, speaking about it to someone else, even speaking about it to ourselves, right? Putting it into words, then we bring our whole brain online. How important is it what we think and what we say to and about ourselves on a daily basis? It's hugely important. Really? It's hugely important. So you think when I was a kid, people would talk about, oh, that's the soup you're swimming in, 
right? It was just a turn of phrase, right? Uh -huh. and, and like that is the soup that we're swimming in, the environment that we're in, a lot of it does come from outside, mm -hmm. but not as much as comes from inside, right? right? So it's absolutely affecting us all day, every day, which is, which is I think is how we can perpetuate over years and years and years the trauma inside of us. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, you think, why don't our brains, I mean, our brains are very sophisticated in a lot of ways. Why don't we go back and do some inventory, right? Like reboot the system and, and look at everything in the past. Like, why don't we do that? You know, it's like, like constantly being in a hurricane, right? Like <laughs> you're just like trying to survive in the hurricane, right? But you give a person a little bit of peace and you're like, okay, wait, what's, I, and I now can think about that. Whereas yes. I couldn't before. So I think it's immensely important. And I've seen that play out clinically really? over and over and over. Like, you know, that person doesn't realize they're living in a hurricane and, and it's coming from in here and they've been struggling with it. And they might say something, well, it's not, can't be from that. That was 15 years ago. Like some people will look at me like, I'm, how, what do you think? That was 20 years ago. It's not affecting me now. But then as we look through it, it's affected them every day from then until now. And that's the last story in the book speaks to that, right? It, it, it speaks to someone who's, you know, whose life changed so much by, by being able to realize, like, no, that thing from 20 years ago has absolutely been oppressing me every single day since then, and I don't want that to be the case anymore. I wanna look at that and say, is it true? Should I feel that way? And if mm. I do, I'll keep doing it. But I'm gonna, I'm gonna give myself the chance of looking at it anew. Yes. Whole life is different. And so, asking yourself what's going on inside of me and what's my narrative about myself, the first two things that we should be yes. doing. I mean, is that what that would happen if you go to a therapist? It'd be essentially going through that process as well. And then how could they start to, where does healing actually begin? Is it an awareness? Is it the talking? Is it rewriting the narrative? Is it just takes time? You know, yeah. how does healing actually occur? It can begin in a, in a moment's notice, right? Like just the, I, I, just the thought that, oh, there's like, there's something new. Like there's like a there's like a new way to think about this or new data. And that's a lot of times what will happen is someone comes in, say so comes in to do therapy, right? And then I can look and say if we work together for like oh they're so much better over months or even over years, right? But oftentimes we can we can trace the improvement back to the very first session of of saying you know there's, I hear what you're saying and you know, there's another way of seeing this mm. that I, I think is not just a sleight of hand, but but is a way that's actually consistent with truth, right? And and I can say that to you because you know, we're all unique, but we fit patterns. And, and I've seen this pattern over and over again, which gives me the hope that through the unique lens of you, there's a different way of thinking about this is real and true mm. and can really change. And you know, there's like, sometimes there's like an, an amazed look because, because you know, we don't like damned if you do, damned if you don't, right? And, and we often have these conflicts in us, these central conflicts of damned if you do, damned if you don't. Right. I gotta change this. And I can't change this, right? And then if you like, look, that's, that's not the only two options and it's not a sleight of hand. And that's like very important because often people think, well, psychotherapy is about like, getting you to feel better. It's, it's not about getting you to feel better if that's through a lens of falsehood, yeah. right? If a person's really doing things to feel ashamed about, let's talk about that and change it, right? Like the idea isn't to make you feel good about things that you should feel bad about, right? The idea is to help you not feel bad about things <laughs> that you shouldn't feel bad about. Mm. Usually that's, what we're doing, and you know, sometimes it involves medicines, and like there are other things to do, and sometimes mm -hmm. there are medical problems involved, there's a thyroid problem, right? like, mm -hmm. there, like there's so many other aspects of it that need to be taken stock of, yes. but the, the healthcare system is in a shambles, and the, and the mental mm -hmm. health system 
is is so surface focused that I don't mean uh. to be critical of like there's so many good individual like practitioners within the systems, but the systems are broken. Yeah. So so you could very well go in and get treatment and not have anyone actually talk about trauma. And I've seen this over and over. You know, people who've had and I'm not making this up or exaggerating, four, five, six residential stays for addiction, right? And, and addiction where if you like just sit and talk with that person, you, you know, it's very obvious, like you're trying to, the person's trying to kill themselves, mm-hmm. right? It's not, oh, they can't stay away from that substance. I mean, sometimes you see that, but you see stories, it's about, hey, what is this person looking for, right? They're looking for escape from suffering, or they're, they're trying to be not alive anymore because they want to end their own suffering, or because they think they deserve that. That's just punishment they feel, wow. right? And the majority, the majority of times, no one has taken any trauma history from that person. Really? So when that is a failure of mm. our systems, when very clearly, if you start talking about trauma, like that's where the money's at, so to speak, the majority of times. Like why is that person doing that? Then you start learning, what's their inner dialogue? What happened to them? Was it acute trauma, chronic trauma, vicarious trauma? But you come down to the trauma, and if you get under the hood and you address the, the, the problems, right, then... The, the, the drive to the substance changes. I mean, that's, that is, in my strong opinion, the way most people who, who, who are in remission from substance use, like they're, they're, they're not using substance anymore, it's not in their life, right? That illness, that disease, that addiction is over, right? It, how did that happen? What are usually by addressing trauma. Oh, by addressing trauma. By addressing trauma. Really? Absolutely, the vast majority. Almost because all trauma is addi- the drive. Almost all addiction is stemming from a trauma. Almost, like a substance abuse addiction, let's say. Yeah, the majority of it. Can I say it's yeah. 70% or 90%? But we're talking about very high numbers, which is why when you look at, when you talk with people who have quote unquote failed addiction treatment, right, which I think is a very awful way to put it, mm-hmm. often they've, why have they failed addiction treatment? Because the addiction treatment didn't address what's actually going on in them. The trauma. Right. Yeah. It didn't address trauma. It says, look, you're going you're gonna to buckle down and you're going to, you know, I, I'm not. I, I think AA does people a lot of good service, right? But there's a way in which like this can get extrapolated. We'll give it up to your higher power and take an inventory, but you're not really looking at what's driving mm. the dysfunction, right? And and that appeals to the aspects of our society that want quick fixes, right? We want quick fixes and we want them to be inexpensive. And not painful. Right, right, and not, <laughs> and, not, and, not painful. and not painful, right? Mm. Right, and it's painful to, to talk about trauma, to go through the, now, People, when they see they're getting healthier, it's very interesting how like people, in a sense, welcome the pain. Really, right? you know, the pain of working out, like it's, it's difficult, but you know you get healthier, yes, right? Yes, of course. Right? So the same thing can happen where like the trauma treatment is arduous, but the person, look, I know I'm getting healthier. But our, our systems, really, I come back to this analogy that the, our systems are built to polish the hood. Mm-hmm. And trauma treatment, is it's more expensive, right? It takes place over time. It involves human beings who are well-trained interacting with other human beings. And it's a lot easier to just say, look, let's, we can polish the surface of anything and spruce it up a little bit and then throw some medicines mm-hmm. at, at people. And that's why we absolutely do not solve these problems. And they're not rocket science problems to solve. Like by a redirection of priority and resources and recognizing what a problem this is, we can appropriately help the people who are suffering from it and often have no route to help, even if they're well insured. Yeah. What will happen in the world over the next 20 years if we don't start addressing our traumas sooner? I think we're in real trouble. And I I don't want to be a 
doomsayer, like, oh, things are just going to get worse. But our increased interconnectedness, so say through social media, which, which can do a lot of good, but also is a route to instantaneously do a lot of bad. Right? And the ability to instantaneously reach one another, often in aggressive ways. And I believe that it's trauma that unhinges us from facts. Mm. Right? I mean, how many factual disputes has there been? I mean, a classic is like, look at crowd size. Like, you know, you could have a third grader in any country in the world. Look, is this crowd bigger than this crowd? Okay, that's like, that's pretty obvious, right? Why would people insist that the, what's smaller is bigger? Right? Mm. How do we get that way, right? I think we get that way through trauma, which says, so what does that say? I mean, if, if you and I can both add one plus one, but I insist it's three, right? When, you, when you're saying it's two and I'm gonna stick to my guns, you might say, well, what's wrong with me, mm. right? Well, what's wrong is I'm not actually prioritizing what's right. I mean, it's a way of saying, look, I, look, I don't actually care what's right. right. What I wanna do is assert myself, right? I'm, I'm angry, right? I feel denigrated, I feel dismissed, I feel lousy about myself. I'm gonna have my way. And if I say one plus one is three, I'll fight, you. I'll fight you to the death about it, right? Why? Because it's not about what's true, it's about the fact that I feel hurt and angry. Mm. And like, how is that not running through our society in all sorts of ways? And the ability to reach one another so quickly, being detached from facts, right? Which I think that comes from trauma, then escalates and we're more and more aggressive with one another, right? We're, we're more and more, I think there was some of the behavior and demeanor, yeah. like, you know, you and I grew up in a similar era. Some of what people say and do on a public stage. On social media, yeah, yeah. Right, I mean, you, you think about the, like, the, the, the criticism. You would never go up to someone's face and do that. We would never no. do that. Even the, the, the criticism of, of, it's almost like hard to say, right? The criticism of, of you know, people who, who died or were captured in, in combat for our country, mm. right? To have criticized someone, like it was unimaginable, right? I mean, I, you know, I was raised in a, in a, a yeah. Christian church. To, to, I would just as soon gone into church and scream profanity, right? right. It was such <laughs> shame to do that. But yet somehow the aggression in that appeals to people who have their own frustrated aggressions and somehow that's okay. Right? And, and I think this, this loss of demeanor and comportment, like what does that actually mean to say that? Like, who are you hurting? Mm. Right? How many people are you hurting who have a dead loved one, right? Or a loved one captured in combat who's missing mm. in action? And, yeah. and we're just going to denigrate that wholesale. Like, how do we get at a point in society where we trust, we, we accept that from people in positions of power instead of saying, hey, I don't care what your agenda is. Like, you know, your agenda could be make my life better. Right? That's your whole political agenda. Make this guy's life better. I will still vote against you because there's a higher set of ethics and morals in me mm -hmm. that says even if like what you're saying I think is good for me, I'm going to reject that anyway. Right? And we don't, we don't see that like we used to see it. Right? And we need to reground to what are our values? Right? Yeah. What are the things that are more important than like me being right or me getting my way or having some political say? And and it's a, sorry, it's a long answer to your mm -hmm. question, but it speaks to why I think like, how's that gonna be better unless we look at what's undergirding us that would lead us in the most basic of ways to argue that one plus one is three when like yeah. clearly it's not. Like we have to go and look at that and that is driven by trauma. So trauma, what I'm hearing you say is people who are hurt and angry, are, it's, there's a trauma underneath that. Otherwise, yeah. you, otherwise you wouldn't be angry right. if you didn't have a trauma that you haven't dealt with. Right. Right, and if we don't see that, we continue to like not understand. Like, how is it that we can't understand one another? 
right? Because I'm trying to convince you and you're trying to convince me. But if, if we're both coming from that hurt, angry place, you know, what I often will witness is like, these two people are arguing, right? I'll see this in some political debate and not one of them gives a damn about what the facts are, right. right? They both just want to be right. And how does that not come from a place of hurt? Like if you feel reasonably good about yourself and you feel like, you know, I've been able to make my way in life, right? And if I, you know, if, if I put in five cents of effort, I can get five cents back for it, right? If you really feel that, you have opportunity, right? Then, then how are you hurt and angry enough to, you know, to, to argue over what's true and what's not true. Right? It's, I just want to be right. I don't care. It doesn't happen except through that lens of trauma. Yeah. What would you say are the, um, the, main, the main symptoms that you see then from people mo- majority of the time? Is it more based on a depression or an angst? Or is it, and, and when, where is that, what's the trauma underneath that? If you see depression, angst, frustration when they come in, is it sexual trauma? Is it, you know, the parents got divorced early? Is it they were bullied? Is it they just didn't feel loved? Or they got something happened? Kind of what's the what's the main traumas that you're seeing underneath right. the depression and angst? Well, so it's a, it's a complicated answer, yeah. but to try and simplify, like the most common traumas I see are the most common traumas, right? Like so, sexual abuse is so mm-hmm. prevalent. Neglect is so prevalent. So mm-hmm. that's what I see the most of but simply because it's most prevalent, right? How traumas impact us is so unique, right? To, to each individual person. And, and some of that involves, well, well, like when did the trauma occur, right? So the, the more formative the years, right? The more, the more difficult it is, or the deeper the impact can be. So part of it is like, what was the timing of the trauma, mm-hmm. right? Part of it is, is, is also like, what, what is the person is the person internalizing or externalizing, right? So people who are externalizing can, can become very sort of outspoken and impactful on the world in negative ways, right? Whether that's through a political lens or it's through a lens of being violent, right? Of uh, abusing and hurting others. Like there are people who are traumatized and they repeat that trauma on others. That's certainly not everyone, but like that's a known phenomenon, yes. right? And that's the externalizing of feeling such fury and such vulnerability inside that the way to try and gain mastery is to then be abusive to others, right? Which can start with like kids bullying other kids, mm-hmm. right? To kids repeating the same sexual or relationship trauma as was as adults as was perpetrated on them, right? Mm-hmm. So we see so as someone more likely to be externalizing, more often than not, people are internalizing. And that's when we see depression, anxiety, isolation, right? Sleep disturbance, because they can't get it to stop in their brains. And then the last factor is like what kind of sort of emotional compass we have. I mean, there are people who can be very resilient and have a lot of trauma, right? And then there are people for whom things that, that we might on a grand scale of things consider relatively mild impact them very significantly mm-hmm. because there's such a finely tuned then emotional trauma. So right. we have to say, okay, what what is a trauma? What is the trauma doing in this person? Then we have to look to the, what kind of support mechanisms do they have? Like, you know, there's, there's so much to it. Right. So it's maybe a non-answer to the question, <laughs> but, it, but it brings out like the, like the factors involved. Yes. What happens to our brain when we experience a, a big trauma, especially at a formative, formidable years? Yeah, so the brain, we have the ability now to look at like what's going on in the brain. Like, you know, not in the way hopefully we will someday, but to say, look, how's your brain functioning? What, mm. what parts of it are more active? 
right? What parts of it are communicating with other parts, right? And so trauma, for example, it, it makes the, the vigilance systems in us much more active, right? So you will see if you take people who, you know, some, they're similar in many ways as most, we can get them, but, but one group has, has really significant trauma, the other doesn't. Right? right. Now again, it's it's an inexact science, sure. right? But but like you can divide it into two groups, and then you see if someone without trauma like sees a person coming towards them, right? The parts of the brain that are interested in like, well, who are you? How are you approaching me? You know, what, what what's the context, right? Is there something like collaborative or interesting? Do mm. I want to shake your hand? Like, you know, I'm interested, right? But if you see through the lens of trauma, it's all coming through vigilance, which is all like, I'm just looking at you for, are you going to hurt me? Wow. Right? And like the changes in the brain are so profound. So if you think about how do you navigate life in an optimal way, if like, you know, instead of like seeing your boss come towards you and thinking like, oh, I'm doing a good job. Like, you know, this person's coming towards me. We can have a conversation like, I get a promotion out of this. You know, I can, I can make a good point for myself. If you just think like, how's that person going to harm me? You know, like you act entirely different, right? Or you know, people seeking relationships, you know, if, if everything is scanning for who's going to be hurtful, right? How do you find the person, right, who, who could be a good relationship partner? And by the way, people who are predatory can absolutely tell that, right? Because you, really? you see people who are predatory and decide, how do they decide who to date, who to work with? They're scanning the room for the person who... Really? Like that. Oh, absolutely. And and the predatory people who that are sociopathic and, and you know, predatory is, is a form of sociopathy, right? Often have gone through their own trauma, but they're externalizing. And then they're absolutely they're so good because I'll see this sometimes when I'm in a room full of people, and I know say most of the people, and I know people in the room, and I know who's vulnerable, right? Now there's someone else in the room who I also know is predatory, and that person sort of sharing with me who they're interested in. And I'm like. Wow. Wow. They're probably not even thinking about it though. No, they're it's not. just like it's just unconsciously happening. The carb fear is real these days, but why does it feel like the carb-heavy foods are what we tend to love the most? After years of wishing there was a better go-to option when the carb craving hits, I finally discovered Hero Bread. Hero Bread makes those same delicious bready favorites free of consequences or compromises. Now get this, Hero Bread has zero to one grams of net carbs, zero grams of sugar, and is high in fiber. They've got an option for every craving, including sliced bread loaves, tortillas, and buns. So you can still enjoy that soft, fluffy experience you love when having a refreshing BLT, savory breakfast burrito, or delicious cheeseburger. Hero Bread also does small batch drops each month of indulgent favorites like the 2-gram Net Carb Hero Croissant or the 1-gram Net Carb Hero Cheddar Biscuit. Now, Hero Bread looks, feels, and tastes just like any other bread you'd get at the grocery store, which is exactly what I was hoping for. Their white sliced bread is so good, and every time I make a sandwich with it, I can't believe something that tastes this good is is actually adding extra protein to my meal. Don't give up on being a breadhead. Hero Bread is offering 10% off your order. Go to hero.co and use code greatness at checkout. That's greatness at H-E-R-O dot C-O. 
Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal? To give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com greatness. Now, you know how much I emphasize the power of teams for your business. And ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. Their smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. My company, Greatness Media, is currently hiring, and in my opinion, finding the right team is one of the most important steps in setting your business up for success. We like to ensure our new hires will be a good fit before they're even on the team. So I'm grateful that I have ZipRecruiter's help with my growing team. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash greatness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash greatness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Right, because they can see things like body language, how, wow. how you know, micro-affective changes, how you, how you keep someone else's gaze, whether you look away. It, it's, you know, having some sort of training in it, I can, yes. I can see some aspects of that myself, but not nearly. I mean, as a psychiatrist for 20 years, I'm not nearly as good at that mm-hmm. as someone who's predatory because that's in them naturally. That's just in them. Yeah. There's a lot of talk about narcissists in the world today. Um, is a narcissist someone who's just been heavily traumatized and, and is externally, uh, externally communicating that as opposed to internally doing yes. it? Really? Yes. I think narcissists, so it's a relatively small portion of the population that does the majority of the damage. Mm-hmm. And, and I would say it that strongly because people who are narcissistic, so there's that externalizing element, right? And, and that's, hmm. that has nothing, there's, there's no interrelation there with like intelligence, capability, right? So people who are narcissistic can be very capable people in the world. And often those resources inside of them, the way they're imposing themselves on the world is in a way that's about destruction, right? Because narcissism comes through the lens of envy. Right? And, and envy is, is different, like you know, there's different lexicons, right? But the way that I sort of learned this and the lexicon I use, jealousy is sort of benign, right? Mm-hmm. Like if you have something I want, I'd like to have it too, maybe I'll work hard for it, right? right. Or maybe I can't get it, right? Like someone's younger than I am, I, I can't make myself younger. Okay, I can, there are other things I can hang my hat on of how I feel uh-huh. about myself. Envy is very different, envy is destructive. And wow. it wants to bring others down. It's to say, if I'm here and I think you're here, I don't need to come here, right? I, I could bring you down here, right? And people do that. Like a classic example is, like the old example of like men whistling at women, right? I mean, how many times has a woman turned around and said, oh, you whistled at me, like, let's go out on a date. Never. Right? Like, so so it, see, it's not designed to be effective, right? In, in what one might think, like, oh, it's, it's, a, it's a way of opening up some, you know, some possibility, right? It's, it's not that, it's, it's a sense of desire and a sense of anger and frustration that then says, hey, I can't take away that person's, whatever it is, their beauty or their youth, I can't take that away, but I can make that person feel awful, really? right? Wow. So you can whistle at them and now they, you know, they, they, they feel it's predatory and be set upon and, you know, and people you know, describe what that, it doesn't feel good, right? right. That's envy, is saying, I can't have what you have, right? And I can't actually take it away from you, but I can do just as good. Right? I can make you feel awful about yourself. Mm. It doesn't matter you have those things I want. I took them away from you. And that's where narcissism coming through that lens of envy and capability, when I see 
mass destruction, whether it's in a family or perhaps on our political landscape, and you look at what's the roots of that, more often than not you come to narcissism. We don't realize the immense dangers that, that not recognizing what is, what is that about, right? And, and they did, that's about the self. And, and that person is trying to fill a bottomless pit. Mm. You don't ever feel about it. You can, you can take everything away from everybody. You're not full. And you, right. And you're not full because you just threw it all into a bottomless so How pit. does a narcissist learn how to heal their own trauma when they typically would never want to say that something's wrong with them? Right. Yeah, it's, it's very hard. People who are suffering from narcissism, whether it's internal, it's more like if it's internalizing. Mm-hmm. But even then, it's, it's hard because there's so much shame associated with that and with admitting or acknowledging anything. Right? It takes what's called ego strength, right? in the old sense of ego as like what's good about us, us at our best, our most knowledgeable. Right? It takes ego strength to say difficult things about, this, uh, about the self. Right? So people who suffer from narcissism very, very rarely will bring themselves to treatment. Really? Right? Yeah. They'll very, resist the therapy for years, right? Very, very rarely. When they come to treatment, it's often because there's some external impetus. Like if they are obligated to or they feel like... Well, that person's to, family yeah. says, like, look, you, you really just can't come back unless you're behaving differently, right? right? Or to. they've gotten in some, some legal trouble somewhere, like, and you have to go, you know, you have to get, go do some therapy work. Or, you know, there often is some element of compulsion. Like, the things we are more likely to seek help for as humans mm-hmm. and things we are less likely. And because narcissism is such a strong defense against shame and inadequacy, then you, you can see how that kind of falls into the category people are much less likely. So let me go get help for that. And it's a whole defensive structure, right? It's not about, like, I, like people can often separate. Like, I kind of know who I am, and I know how I am when I get depressed. And I don't like that, because, like, that's not me, to be, like, lethargic, and I'm not getting out of bed, and I'm not there for people I love. And, like, I don't like that, and I want to be back to me. That It's different when what's going on is, like, that is part of the character structure. Like, mm. Well, that is... The person and, and it takes a lot of courage to to recognize something like that and say, look, I want to make that I want to make that better in myself and, and I know I've got to look at really difficult things. I've worked with people who do that. Really? You just don't you just don't it's, see it. It's rare. Way. Yeah. When does uh, that usually happen where they come to you? Is it like their world is falling apart or they're just, you know, have a massive breakdown or yes. yeah. that's when they're finally like, okay, I surrender. And that's what kind of makes the compulsion. Right, because like something in the world falling apart means like, hey, you have to go, or your you know your family doesn't want to see you anymore, something right, like right, that, right. right? But even then, there's often a push and pull. Like I'm, you know, we can all do this in therapy. Sometimes we try and keep things on the surface because like oh, we let it go a little deeper, and it's going to be painful. But there's there can be a lot of that because the idea is, hey, I'm going to come to therapy because I think I should, or someone tells me I should, but I don't. I, I don't want the vulnerability, which is why you need to build a relationship and trust before mm-hmm. you can start talking about yeah. difficult things. Is there any way? to heal trauma without re-experiencing the pain of the trauma? Or do you just, you've gotta go through the pain in order to get to the other side? I mean, to some degree, uh, I think you have to go through the pain. Again, there are exceptions where where someone, you know, is sort of blessed with a lot of ego strength and a lot of resilience and can look and say, look, I know this, this, and this is is true about me. And, and, And this is like, Something I don't I don't want to be it to be there for me and and they can sort of compartmentalize mm-hmm. and partition that but that's usually not how that goes yeah right usually we have to look at the pain of it but that doesn't mean 
like reliving every detail. Right. You right. know, and, and a lot of times people sort of think, if I'm going to go get, even in my own mind, right, do trauma work, let alone with another person, I'm going to have to say every detail about something. You won't say every detail. Is that what you're saying, or you will? Most often a person doesn't have to, right? Sometimes it's, it's necessary when the, like, the sense of shame is so lodged in the details. Sometimes you do have to go through all of yes. it. But more often than not, you know, we're, we're talking about the, the idea of not having to go through every detail also emphasizes the shared humanity of it, right? That, like, you know, how many of us are traumatized? There's a commonality to that, that by someone telling me about their... The, what their trauma is and how that makes them feel, there's still vulnerability and exposure to yes. that, then we can have a shared understanding of it. Like I can put words and they can put words to where like they can feel that I get what's going on inside of them mm-hmm. without them having to, to, the person having to go through and say, you know, every last yeah. a- aspect of it. What's your definition of shame? So, so shame, there's this idea of, of like core affects in us and, and it's just, it's kind of a technicality, but affects are sort of aroused in us, right? And like we think often of arouse as a sexual word, and you could see how it's that way, like something turns a person on without choice, right? Yes. But, but, but lots of things are aroused in us, right? Somebody stands, comes, comes in front of you and pushes you, you know, like fear or anger are aroused, right? And we know that because, because that, that courses through the person's body, right? And, and you see like changes in skin conductance, the person's getting mm. ready for fight or flight, right? And the brain patterns change, and then they know it. Right. Right. So that's interesting, right? The knowledge of it comes after because that's actually less important, right, for, say, staying alive, right? And the same is true with shame. Like, shame is aroused in us. And, and, and it's just this awful feeling, right, of, like, terribleness of the self, right? And you think, why are these core affects in us, right? It's very clearly about survival. Right? I mean, that example of someone appears in front of you and pushes you, and your whole body gets ready to fight or flight, and then you know it, mm-hmm. says, right, that's about survival. Right. And, and shame has a function in us too, right? Imagine like doing something shameful. See, when humans, we still do in some cases, live in small groups, right? Like if you got up in the middle of the night and ate all the food, like it's it's okay if you feel shame. Like you you have shame imposed on you the next day because it's like don't do that again. Yeah. Because that could you know take everybody's life, right? So there's a, there's a function to it, right? Mm. But when it's aroused in us and it's not aroused in a sense for good reason, like one hasn't done something shameful, right, right? Right. But it's aroused because of that feeling of vulnerability, right? And you know trauma can be chronic, like you know the chronic trauma of. Systemic racism that tells somebody like, oh, you are less than. They get that message over and over and over again, mm. right? Like it's a different kind of trauma, but it's no less valid, right? Where we see it, of course, most dramatically is in acute trauma, right? You know, the person I would see in an emergency room after a rape mm. who's talking about how ashamed they feel, right? And it's like, why? Okay, because the shame is aroused in the person. It's created, right, from the sense of vulnerability, a sense of terror, Right? And then if that person doesn't have a route like that says, of course that was created in you. Right? And now we need to talk about what to do with it. Mm. Because if we don't, we know what it will do. Yes. It will go inside of you, right? There starts the changes to the immune system, and that person's more likely to then have an autoimmune problem mm. later on in life, more likely to get cardiovascular disease, more likely to become depressed, more likely to abuse substances. It's like, that's what happens because that shame becomes the persecutor inside of you. Wow. So let's look at that, and if we can look at that in an emergency room right after something has happened, like, that's a, that's a great time to do that, and to because to, you can be most helpful to that person acutely. But, but what's amazing is, 
we can do that 40 years later too mm. and still get an impact because a parallel to physical health is like an abscess, right? It's like infection inside of us that's walled off, right? And sometimes there can be an abscess that doesn't do, do anything to us, right? But more often than not, it spins off symptoms. Mm. Low-grade fever, feeling of fatigue, jittery, like there's, it's not good to have inside of us and we'll see it track forward like an abscess would but over years and years and years where that thing inside is spinning off all these negative thoughts and feelings and, um, and choices, right? right? And we can go get it that, unlock it, expose it to the light of day and then it doesn't have to be doing that anymore. There's, there's actually kind of a simplicity how, shame, how trauma makes shame that's aroused in us, comes back in towards us, gets walled off, it then changes our feelings about ourselves, which then changes our memories, it then changes our mood, anxiety, behavior, and everything else. Like, there's a, a simplicity to that story, right? And, and truth in mental health is grounded in simplicity. It, mm. you know, brains are, compl- lots of things are complicated, but, the, but like, things that are true doesn't make, mean they're easy, but, mm-hmm. but, but there's a simplicity to understanding them I know it's, it's a long answer to the question, yeah. but that's how we get at what happens from trauma and aroused shame and how we get to like 40 years later and something's walled off inside the person and has harmed them now for all those years. Man, the sooner you can address it, the better. Yeah, absolutely. The sooner the better. I, uh, for 25 years, I wasn't able to sleep at night. It would take me hour, two hours every night to fall asleep. And I didn't know why. I was just like... You know, my mind is racing, but I didn't understand why it happened for so long. Literally, within a few days after I opened up about sexual abuse for the first time at 30 years old, it's like I could fall asleep within like five to 10 minutes. And I go, my whole life, I haven't been able to sleep. You know, or just I'd lay there in bed for hours, fine asleep, then have to, you know, wake up late. I never felt like I could really get a rhythm going. And now I can. Amazing, that it's, is. It's like so amazing freedom. what you. Yeah. Said like just by talking about it, opening up about it, it, and then something that deeply impactful mm-hmm. for years. Like you probably had a conception of like that's me. That's me. That's right? my like, identity. Right. Yeah. Right. That's not going to change. So so yeah. I'm I'm up against that all the time. Mm-hmm. And then oh lo and behold it changes. Yeah. Right. And I and I think there's brain biology behind that. And mm-hmm. I would even locate that I think areas like the ventral tegmentum, the amygdala. Like I can think of like the parts of your brain that I think were so spun up because when you internalize that feeling of responsibility or shame or whatever was inside of you, that it comes with vulnerability and mm-hmm. it makes hypervigilance. Yes. And then those parts of the brain don't want to sleep. Right? It's not like you weren't sleeping. They're like protect yourself, protect yourself. Right. Yeah. Right. It says your part of your brain is saying this is good for you because this inability to sleep may keep you alive. Right. Right. So if that part of the brain has its say, that's why that gets perpetuated because the brain decides, right, this isn't great, but it's the best it gets, mm. right? But then when you, even opening up about it, which must have relieved, like lancing an abscess, right? Yes. Oh my gosh, then those parts of the brain quiet down and your whole brain decides, you know what's good at night? Restful sleep, sleep. <laughs> right? Why don't we get some of that? Because I am actually safe, right? Yeah. Like you just have that feeling, like I, I'm safe, I take care of myself, I can go to sleep and like, I don't think anything bad's gonna happen to me nice. when I'm sleeping. And like, look at the immensity of that change just by talking about it. Like, it's so powerful because it's so deeply impactful. And it can happen with such a rapid shift of just letting it out. And, and I think why? Because it's a shift. What must have happened in you is a shift towards truth. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Let, talking about it and then rewriting the story, like you said. Right. Which is huge. Right. And. The story for me was, you know, 
I'm not enough, I'm not lovable, I'm abused, I'm taking, I get taken advantage of. It was like a constant, so right. I was always on guard looking out for that. Right. As opposed to rewriting the story. Right. And I think that's... And isn't it fascinating so that that's the same words I hear put to it from people across the spectrum, mm-hmm. right? No matter what, you know, demographics, age, gender, type of trauma, in, in myself, like that's, it was, that's my dialogue too, right? Because that's what shame makes in us, right? Mm-hmm. That, 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 like, you're not good enough, no one will love you, you, know, you can never be safe. That's the messaging and that's like, the reason that I wrote that book, it was the realization over years of doing this that, that like I hear that all the time no matter like what type of trauma or what type of person is in front of me. I thought, well, there's something going on here at a sort of foundational level of our brains, mm-hmm. right? And then if you think about the, the psychology and the neuroscience of it, it tells us the answer to yeah. it. Yeah, this is powerful stuff. What else do we need to know about trauma? Uh, or for anyone listening or watching, if, they're, if they haven't started to process certain things or maybe they feel this angst or frustration or depression feeling, what else would you say to them listening about what they could do next? Yeah, so I think the, the first thing I would say is to emphasize what's going on inside of you is not too complicated to be solved, mm. right? Because that, that's the thought, like we get thoughts on top of thoughts on top of thoughts and we, 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 it seems so impossible. Like, like trying to untie a Gordian knot, right? Like how am I gonna figure my way out of this, right? And to know that like that's not actually true, right? It's not too complicated to be solved, right? But we come at it in a different way. It's probably why the story of the Gordian knot is thousands of years old, right? I think, right? It's, it's mythology, right? That like, well, that's not what you do. There are things that we can't unravel, but, th- but that we don't have to. Right? And, and the idea of put, th- make a new narrative, look at what's inside of you, means you don't have to untie that anymore. Mm. Right? So know that, in a sense, simplicity is your friend. Right? And that gives us a great deal of hope. And that we can start to feel better very soon, just as I think is, is wonderful like how you described how your life changed in just a few days. Yeah. Right? And like, that's really. The truth, I mean, when yeah. I first went and, went and saw a therapist, I didn't know what to do with the person. Like, I, how am I supposed to perform? Like, all these yeah. thoughts in my head. Like, I remember saying, like, oh, my brother killed himself. And it was like feeling so much, even putting it to words, because like there's an immensity to it that was beyond me, mm-hmm. right? So instead of like, that's my fault, I should have seen, I should have known, I should have done, right? I'm bad because I went off to college and I got this job, so I wasn't around home, I wasn't close to him. Like all these things, just saying that was like, whoa, this is bigger than you, mm-hmm. right? And, and things that are bigger than us give us some freedom from them. But even the idea that like people do do terrible things to other people, right? So because we get so lost in like the idea of the, the, that our, tra- I mean our traumas are unique, but the idea that like this never happens to anyone else, right? And the idea that no, right. like, People abuse other people and yeah. you know, people die in accidents and, and people commit suicide and, and like there's a shared humanness to this. And and I think that's so important in doing the work that like I, I don't understand like hiding who we are in our work, right? Because we're all traumatized, right? In my view of things, because that's what I see in the world around me. And mm-hmm. sharing that, have an idea of what you feel because my trauma is, is not yours, and I'm not being presumptuous in a way of saying, I, I understand that, but the underlying feelings of shame and frustration, like, I understand that. And that's mostly what really what people want, yes. is, is a sense of, because if, if I 
feel so isolated and then I talk to you and I get a feeling like you're looking back at me like you, you could understand me and you're, you're not recoiling from me, right? In fact, you may be coming closer metaphorically, mm -hmm. right? Because you can relate to what's going on in me. It takes away the idea that, oh, if I share any of this, I expose to the world what an awful, unlovable, undesirable person. Yeah. It's like, like the old adage of like, turn on the lights and show the child the clothes tree, right? That mm -hmm. looks like a monster, yes. right? And that's how we get inside of us. I can't look at this, it's incredibly complicated. And what shame will it make in me to talk about it? It's like, no, it's the exact opposite of turn the lights on, look at it. We can, we can look everywhere around it. And what does that make? Makes things better. By right? talking about your shame. Yeah, and by, by shining the light everywhere. Yes. Like, how do you, I, I've talked to people about their feeling of shame and responsibility. Let's talk about all of it. Again, it's mm -hmm. got to be done over time and right, in a right, careful right. way. And then a person can talk about the nuances of what they, they feel inside and that they hold on to responsibility and can get to, the, to, the, to a point of saying, look, my responsibility is to take care of myself mm -hmm. and be a good person in the world. I'm not responsible for things that I had no control yeah. over. And like, that's very, very liberating where you're on the one hand, you're acknowledging the uniqueness of that experience in that person. And on the other hand, you're mapping that to the shared humanity that says you are not singled out by humanity for awful things to happen right. to you. And right. like that's a, wow, that can be a tremendous relief. Yeah, when I started opening up about it, I remember quickly being able to fall asleep at night, but it probably took me eight or nine months to be able to fully talk about it openly yeah. with friends, family, yeah. and not feel like stressed. Right. You know, every time right. I talked about it, first to family, I was, a little worried what they're going to yeah. think, then to kind of close friends. Then I started, yeah. through my podcast and my work, I felt more of a, uh, an opportunity to really serve people. And I felt like this kind of nagging thing, like I should probably be vulnerable on my show. Right. And so, But I was afraid to talk about it for many months because I was like, what yes. if it ruins my business and my life? And right. people look at me differently in the public. Right. My friends and family have to love me, but you right. know, publicly it might be different. I felt right. more of a duty because as a young kid, I didn't see older men talking about it. You know, right. in the 80s and 90s, I didn't see right. men saying I was sexually abused right. on TV or, or at least right. I wasn't exposed to it. Right. Maybe they were, but I wasn't seeing right. it. Well, I didn't see it either. If they right. were, we both yeah, missed Exactly. It, right? And so I felt more like, the more I realized like one in six boys, I was like, man, someone's got to speak up about it. I might as right. well do it, you know, if I want this opportunity. Right. So, but it was, it was a process. It was a journey. It took, you know, eight, nine months till I felt more and more comfortable talking about things. Right. But at least I was feeling more peaceful inside within days of exposing right. the light to right. the shame. Yes. And two really important points that yeah. I think that brings to the surface. One is you're saying, like, what can people do today? Right. And it's remarkable. It's not just some shallow thing to say. That Like when mm -hmm. you do good for other people, you know that there's good in you to do. You see your worth. Right. Mm -hmm. So, so you're, you're, I think if I'm understanding you're describing part of your healing was... I can talk about this in a way that like has to help other people, right? Yes. And then what's that? That puts the lie to those thoughts inside. Like, how can you not be good enough? Or how can you not make any positive impact if you can do this and, and, and make life better for people? Yeah. And that's often what people start doing is they take a meal to the person down the road who lost the, the, mm -hmm. you know lost someone in their life, or you know they smile at someone when they might have been annoyed because they hold them up in line or something. Like th these things are really, really important. They're important because they are good for other people, but they reinforce like, hey, there's good in the self, mm -hmm. right? So that part is is very important. And then the the, the the another 
aspect of this that I think is a huge deterrent in our society that wants immediate results, right? It's why we use like five times as much medicines as say the Dutch, right? Mm. Because they don't want immediate results, right? If you're overweight, like exercise more, like that, right? Why don't we just give you a medicine, right? But we want immediate results and then we get frustrated that things don't change in our brain immediately, mm. right? You know, there's an, an adage in neuroscience that the neurons that fire together wire together, right? So if you and I just picked a word right now and we said it over and over again 500 times, mm -hmm. like a guarantee you'll be saying it tonight, right. right? I'll be saying it over my brain to you tomorrow morning, right? Why? Right, because just the fact that we said it 500 times, our brain's gonna hold on to it. It essentially doesn't believe us. If we say that was just a silly experiment, like eject it from the brain, please. It doesn't do that, right? right? And, and these patterns inside of us only atrophy. Right? You know, so, so people, you know, I talk to people a lot about this, right? Because otherwise people start feeling better and doing better, but they still have like that same thought in their head. It may be there less frequently, right? And someone needs to say to them like, hey, how, here's how this goes away. It atrophies, right, mm -hmm. over time. Yeah. It's less and less. And I've worked with people who maybe had 10, 20 years of nonstop negativity. Then they change their lives and they'll say, wow, it's 10 years later, and like, that'll still come into my head, mm -hmm. right? I do something, I dropped, you know, I dropped a big, one person dropped a big thing of milk in a store, and it shatters, and everyone's looking at them, and then they're like, you should kill yourself, right? right? Because that was in their head before, but they've gotten to the point where they know, like, hey, I don't actually believe that, right? That There's the proof that mm -hmm. those neuronal connections die hard yes. if you reinforce them over time. So that's why we need to do, like, longitudinal work, whether it's on ourselves or in therapy, mm -hmm. and to realize like it's okay that it doesn't go away all at once, right? Like that's wow. actually the best it happened. And what you described in a sense is very classic. Like I felt, you felt better in really strong identifiable ways very quickly, but then the cognitive patterns in you took much yeah. longer to change. Come back, yeah. Right, because that's the way it works in us, yeah. right? But we don't learn that, you know? I, 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 I joke, half joke, I, I'm gonna write a book on everything I learned about Everything I need to learn about life or needed to know about life, I learned as a post-medical school psychiatry resident, right? Because I really believe we should be learning these things in elementary school. And yes. like, I'm not the only one to think that. Like, why are we not teaching about, like, why is that bully behaving that way, right? Why don't we look at how that person can feel better about themselves in a different way? Look at what's going on at home, mm -hmm. right? Tell, help the people understand who are being bullied, right? Like, that person is, something is hurting that person. Right? So they're coming after you and they're making fun of like your clothes or your looks or whatever it is, right? But like, but that's, you know who that's about? It's about them, yes. right? So you then externalize them, but we don't do that. And then we, we grow up without all this like really basic knowledge. And I remember being a second year psychiatry resident. So I was, you know, I had another career before this. So by then I'm in my early 30s, right? And I was about 30 years old and I'm a second year postgraduate resident. I was like, oh my God, why didn't I learn this in second grade? And I think we need to start teaching ourselves these things as adults and then also to kids because that's how we protect children. You know, and there's a, there's a chapter in there where I talk with Stephanie von Gutenberg, who's a, a child advocate, right? A child abuse advocate. And I think that chapter, you know, brings out like how we can educate and empower children mm. in, in ways that we just don't now. And, and sometimes there are dramatic things that happen then, but sometimes there are things that are, in a sense, more they're insidious if they're less dramatic. Like somebody who's just bullied, yeah. right, for whatever reason, or they look different than everybody else, or they have less resources than everyone else, and there's nothing dramatic happened, right? No one identified that as problematic, but that person 
is every bit as traumatized, yeah. and their their sense of self is changing. We 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 just have to change this. It's so yeah. it's so clear and obvious that we have to change it. Well, if you could teach three things to second graders, what would you teach them? Would well, pay attention to what's going on inside of you, mm -hmm. right? The idea that we think, you know, my, my I have a daughter who's seven, and she likes she wants to count together, in but in our heads. Right, because like it's interesting to her now that like she could say things, but she can think them in her heads, right? And engendering that kind of reflectiveness, what's going on inside of you, we can do mm. with with children, right? And 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 we can help them put words to whatever that is, right? That and what we wouldn't so to use these words, but attribution, right? Whose fault is something, right? And again, the classic element of, of bullying. I mean, if you ask kids, like, who, who what's going on? the kids who are being bullied. I mean, they always, they, they blame it on themselves, mm. right? There's not the cognitive mechanism. <laughs> Look, I've sat with kids who who's have horrible things. They've been burned with cigarettes and locked in closets, mm. right? And they have a story of how that's their fault. Wow. Because the brain doesn't know enough to think differently. Like, you know, if you're, you're that age, you, you can't make a, a more esoteric Attribution, you don't know enough, right? But if someone helps you to, to look and say, oh, like, you feel ashamed of yourself because that person tells you to, right? But what's, what's, actually, what's actually going on? Like, it's not that hard to communicate in, in like age-appropriate language. So like, don't just blame everything on you, right? right? And you can also go, what are you, are you doing things that you should feel bad about? Like, if you're talking to the, to the bully, right? Do you want that person to understand, like, you're hurting these other kids, mm -hmm. right? And does that feel good? If so, why? Right? Same way we would with adults. Like, why yeah. does it, if it feels good that you're hurting people, let's talk about why is that, right? Because where do we get to that 100% of the time? We get to trauma. Mm -hmm. We get to something that's some version of, I don't feel good about myself and it feels powerful to hurt other people. Mm -hmm. But boy, you get at that in second grade instead of 20, 30, 40, right. 50 years old, that you can really change that. Like, there's, there's an aspect of this that I do feel kind of regresses back to the mean of just common sense. You know, and, and I think that is, is in the book. I don't, I, if it were an academic book, I wouldn't have had it in me to put the time and effort into write it, right? But the idea that there's a simplicity and a common sense here that can like really, like the light bulb can go off of like, I know how I can make this better, yeah. right? I can look at what's going on in my head. I can rethink the narrative. I can do something good for someone else. That can all start happening today. This is powerful stuff, Paul. I want people to Thank get the you. book. Uh, it's called Trauma, The Invisible Epidemic, How Trauma Works and How We Can Heal From It. Um, we'll have to have you come back on and do a couple more hours on this stuff because I feel like it's fascinating work Thank that you're you. doing. You've worked with a lot of big you know, entrepreneurs, you know, CEOs, celebrities, world-class athletes and individuals, and also people in day-to-day -day life you know, yeah. living their lives, working their careers in relationships and dealing with their own challenges. Um, you see that we're all people. Yeah. Right? And you work across the socioeconomic spectrum. And you, you just see that, like, we are so all the same. And we're kidding ourselves if we think that whatever we've gotten for ourselves, some status, something that it's good to celebrate good things we make in our lives. But we let's not mistake that for the shared humanity mm -hmm. in all of us, which I think is very, very hopeful. The shared humanity of trauma is... is absolutely true and if we yeah. think of it that way well that's how we heal from it as a as a society is it harder to heal trauma if you have a bigger platform or if you're a celebrity would you say as opposed to you know maybe not that many people know about you yes it's harder yes. yeah because fame fame brings to other people the the, the feeling of they have a, a right 
to make some sort of pronouncement about a person, right? And, and mm. sometimes that comes through the lens of someone who really legitimately admires someone, right? But there are you know, a, a significant subset of people who are externalizing their trauma, right? Who are, in a sense, attractive to people who are famous in order to tear them down, mm. right? And we, we see that in the media, right? Like fame right. is, they can bring good things, but it's, it's, it also brings danger. Yeah. I have uh, two final questions for you. But again, I want people to get the book, Trauma, The Invisible Epidemic, How Trauma Works and How We Can Heal From It. Lots of practical stuff in here. Um, I see Peter Atia, who we've had on the show, who has left a quote for you as well, and a lot of other great people. So make sure you guys get the book. You're not on social media, but they can, or are you? I didn't Uh, see you. Yeah, LinkedIn. LinkedIn, okay. One social media platform. But Dr. Paul Conti. Dot com is where they can learn more about you yes. and the book, and they can go get it on Amazon, obviously, and Barnes and Noble and things like that. So check out the book. Um, Thank you. This this question is called uh, the three truths, and maybe okay. you've already kind of answered a little bit, but I ask everyone of this at the end of our interviews, and I'd like you to imagine that it's your last day on Earth, many years away. Okay. You get to live as long as you want to live, but then eventually, it's the last day for you. And you get to accomplish all your dreams. All the things you want to create, they come true. But for whatever reason, all of your written and uh, written work and content and videos and audios, for whatever reason, they go somewhere else. So we don't have access to this content anymore okay. or the book. Okay. Uh, but you could leave behind three things you know to be true, three lessons you would share with the world. Mm-hmm. And this is all we would have from mm-hmm. you. What would you mm-hmm. say would be those three truths for you? Look at what's going on inside of you. Mm-hmm. How are you treating other people? How are you treating yourself? Before I ask the final question, Paul, I want to acknowledge you for the incredible work you're doing. You know, you. To, to be doing this for you know, two decades, to be helping so many people in your practice consistently, to be creating this book so that we can have tools and, in, and information to help Thank heal you. ourselves and get to the root of why we're frustrated or angry or depressed or something's off. Thank you. It's all based on the traumas that we've dealt with and we haven't, or we've experienced and haven't dealt with yet and, yes. and integrated through healing. So I really acknowledge you for putting your work out there in Thank a way you. that we can consume it and understand something that is so scary to look at for so many of us. Thank it's you. terrifying for a lot of people to face their shame. Yeah. And so I acknowledge you for, for doing this work and Thanks I hope, so much. Yeah, of course. And I hope people get the book. It's forwarded by Lady Gaga. So uh, make sure people check this out. This is um, the final question is what's your definition of greatness? Perseverance and humility. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and it inspired you on your journey towards greatness. Make sure to check out the show notes in the description for a full rundown of today's show with all the important links. And also make sure to share this with a friend and subscribe over on Apple Podcasts as well. I really love hearing feedback from you guys, so share a review over on Apple and let me know what part of this episode resonated with you the most. And if no one's told you lately, I want to remind you that you are loved, you are worthy, and you are matter. And now it's time to go out there and do something great.
Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. 